Welcome to today's uh, discussion. My name is Glenn Deason. Uh, with me is uh, Alexander Mercuris of the Duran. And today we're joined by Ray McGovern, a top CIA analyst for 27 years, who chaired the uh, national intelligence estimates and was also responsible for preparing the president's daily brief. So uh, today we want to discuss this uh, the Pentagon leaks uh, that revealed some of the main uh, well, yeah, lies about the Ukrainian war. Uh, also, the Nord Stream attacks, as uh, you recently gave your testimony at the United Nations, which was excellent. And if we have time, we can also discuss the manipulation of information by the intelligence community, also the state of China-Russia relations, if there's time. So, again, who's better to speak with on these matters than the excellent Ray McGovern? So, welcome back, Ray. It's uh, good to see you again, and it's yeah, great to have you on. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, start with this uh, Pentagon leaks, which uh, is yeah grabbing everyone's attention. So obviously, um, yeah, the, these leaks suggest that there's been you know some lying. Uh, Washington has, to some extent, lied to its own people, but also the wider world, especially about this war going on in Ukraine. But uh, uh, yeah, first of all, I just wanted to ask you, what, what did you make of these leaks? Uh, they appear to be authentic, uh, but uh, this I have so many questions. How how can such a, was a 21-year-old who got access to all these documents? And uh, and, and what, 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 what can we learn from these documents, in your opinion? Are you asking me first, uh, Glenn? Oh, yes, sorry. Okay, sure, no problem. Well, um, the provenance of the leaks is problematical. I see everyone focusing in on this airman first class, for God's sake. Um, in my view, there is no way that he could have had access to some of those internal CIA documents, much less extis, no dis, cables from the State Department. That all comes to kind of a pyramid under the Joint Chiefs of Staff and under the Director of National Intelligence. It's someone, in my view, at that level uh, that has either authorized or slipped out or, or actually made this kind of leak. Uh, this is not unprecedented. Exactly, exactly the same thing came when there was real fear of a widened war up to and including the border with China during Vietnam. Uh, very briefly, uh, our colleagues, or my colleagues actually at CIA, uh, had an estimate of enemy forces in South Vietnam as between 500 and 600,000 troops. Now, General Westmoreland, who was in charge of our expedition there, said, no, no, it couldn't be more than 299,000. I asked Sam Adams, my colleague who was charged with counting up these troops, uh, how do you figure that, Sam? Uh, it's, uh, it's sort of unusual for a commander at war to be de-emphasizing rather than exaggerating the number of forces that he faces. And Sam said, that's a PR thing, Ray. Uh, if you look at uh, the casualty figures, the enemy counts, you know, the the number of VC we're killing every week, well, the uh, uh, the press in Saigon is not the smartest bunch of people, but they can do subtraction, right? Okay. 
And if all of a sudden you say there's double the amount of enemy troops in South Vietnam, as Wes Smolin has been saying, you're in trouble. As a matter of fact, says Sam to me over lunch on the 20th of August, 2000, I'm sorry, 1997. He says, Ray, there was a cable in this morning from General Abrams, Creighton Abrams, Westmoreland's deputy. I said, well, what did it say? He said, well, explain the whole thing. He said, and I quote this cable, there is no way that we could go with the accurate numbers that Sam Adams has produced because we could not escape, despite the caveats we would use, could not escape the press in Saigon from drawing an erroneous and gloomy conclusion because we have been projecting an image of success in this war. We don't want to risk that kind of conclusion. Now, Creighton Abrams was a, a great tanker, okay? Patton said next to him, Creighton Abrams was the best tanker in the world, right? Okay. But Creighton Abrams didn't know much about politics and he didn't know enough not to put that down in black and white. So there it was laid out right there. What happened very briefly, the estimate that we prepared was rejected by the head of central intelligence. Why? He said to Sam Adams, look, Sam, you're right, but my job is to protect the agency, okay? And there's no way I can protect the central intelligence agency if I allow us to get involved in a pissing match with the U.S. Army at war. So please understand. Sam didn't understand. I didn't understand. And the proof was in the pudding. Tet. Three months later, late January, early February, 1968. Guess what? Uh, every hamlet, every village, every town, every city in South Vietnam was raided, was attacked in a countrywide offensive by guess how many troops? You guessed it, 600,000, okay? That was a debacle, okay? Now, that's, we're, we're talking now at the beginning of February. What was Westmoreland doing? Was he saying, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa? No, he was saying, hey, just give me 206,000 more troops and we can, we can go in, into Cambodia, we'll go to Laos, we'll go right up to the Chinese border through North Vietnam, we got this thing cooked. All I need is 206,000 more troops. Now, the point of this whole story is that two very well-placed leaks in the New York Times, which in those days didn't check with the administration before they published things, try to remember that, okay? Mm -hmm. um, what happened was that a very high official at the Defense Department, number three actually, wanted to stop LBJ from giving Westmoreland the 206,000 troops that he wanted to march through Cambodia, North Vietnam, up to the Chinese border. He didn't want that to happen. So he leaked Westmoreland's request that New York Times, Neil Sheehan and Rick Smith on the 10th of March, 1968. Now, this next one is kind of an interesting thing. There was a fellow that watched this. He was fully observant. He knew Vietnam like the back of his hand. His name was Daniel Ellsberg. He watched that leak and he said, my God, somebody had the guts to leak that request. I'm going to have the guts to make my first leak 
his very first. This is three years before the Pentagon Papers, okay? <laughs> Dan Ellsberg releases the accurate figures on enemy forces, which CIA had depicted accurately, and then compared them with the fudging that Westmoreland did, laid it all out, actually gave Neil Sheehan the estimate that the director of central intelligence dissed because he didn't want to get in a pissing match with the U.S. Army at war, right? So that leak appeared on the 19th of March. So 10th of March, 19th of March. On the 25th of March, LBJ confided to a small group of observers, and we know this, this is documentary evidence, I would have given Westy the 206,000 men, but now those damn leaks to the New York Times have stopped that. We have very little support for the war. I'm going to go for a ceasefire, for a, a pause in the bombing. And six days later, as many will recall, LBJ appears on TV and says, I will not ask for the nomination. I will not run again for president of the United States. So these are my, what I'm saying here is these were consequential leaks. There's a codicil here. Uh, Dan Ellsberg and I used to pull our hair out and say, who was it? Who was it that gave Neil Sheehan and Rick Smith uh, those figures that Westmoreland wanted? And we couldn't figure it out. Dan has far better sources than I. Couldn't figure it out until the guy died. And guess who it was? <laughs> it was Leslie Gelb, number three in the Defense Department at the time, who leaked that because he wanted to prevent a widened war, okay? Now, when did we learn that? Only if Leslie Gelb died in 2019. Do the math, 2019 minus 1968. That's a long time to remain in good odor, to be, to be president of the Council of Foreign Relations, and then emeritus, and die a hero without anybody knowing that your really heroic act was prevent a war with China. So now the other irony is that at precisely the same time, Les Gelb saw it as his patriotic duty to leak Westmoreland's figures. He was appointed by McNamara to put together and compile the Pentagon Papers, mm. which three years later, of course, in Ellsberg revealed. And what did Leslie Gelb say then? Oh, this is bad. This is an awful kind of leak. <laughs> so you can see what kind of chicanery at the one point, but also patriotism was exhibited by these two. People had a lot to lose. Dan more than less, because less was less likely to be, to, uh, to be found. So leaks can prevent a widened war. And bottom, bottom line here is that I hope, because initially there were all kinds of reports appearing in the Washington Post and the BBC showing what lies were being told about this war and showing that Ukraine is not winning, that the, the, the Russians are on the march and that uh, there's no uh, air defense capability for the Ukraine. So all these things put together suggest to me that there were people who wanted to feed the Washington Post and the BBC the real story in hopes that more sensible decisions could be made by these adolescents that are advising Joe Biden. But the cons that, oh, sorry. Go on, Glenn, 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 oh, no. Glenn, go on. I was just going to say, it appears that, uh, well, comparing the 
the time during the Vietnam War with the present, uh, uh, it appears that the, the leaks uh, tend to come at a specific time in a war. And I'm I'm reminded by yeah something Walter Lippmann wrote uh, about a century ago, and he he made this point that uh, when you're ramping up a war, you will always say you know, the war propaganda will always be the same. That is, uh, you know, the enemy is taking all the casualties. They're backwards. They're useless. They don't know how to fight our side. You know, we have low casualties. Uh, very professional. We're winning. We're winning. So this is kind of the same rhetoric you have in any war, and and this is a you know it's, it's good propaganda because you mobilize your your public who thinks that you're going towards victory. They're willing to send weapons and you know spend all this treasure and blood. However, uh, what Lippmann then said that this is great to you know when, when you're going to war, but uh, but one once you want to make once you want to make peace. Uh, in his his case, he was analyzing the Bolshevik, uh, um, you know, sorry, the the civil war in Russia and British involvement. Once you want peace, this is very problematic because you told all these fantasy tales about winning and winning. So, and this is kind of the same in this scenario. Now that uh, obviously Ukraine and NATO are are losing this war, then you you need to get you know how how you're going to walk back all of this. And obviously, the people who been spinning these uh, stories, they can't really walk this back so uh, this looks like the opportune time for a leaker to come out and you know mm-hmm. let, let the public know whoever it is that this is uh yeah this is not reality and um i just have to say as well like i think most people who followed this conflict knew that this was uh the narrative was nonsense because uh, uh for example the, the kill ratio was one of the things that came out in the leaks apparently you know for every, the kill ratio is about one to seven so for every Russian casualty, there's seven on the Ukrainian side. And, you know, because we, we've been telling the other story that uh, Russia's just losing men left and right and uh, Ukraine has very low numbers. But it never made any sense, really, because we also recognize that 75 to 80 percent of casualties are by uh, artillery and missiles. And we also know that Russia has about seven to 10 advantage in missiles, uh, in sorry, in artillery. That is one artillery shell for the, for the Ukrainian, they will get seven and 10 back from the Russians. Plus, the Russians are dominating the missiles. So it just seems to me that this uh, this the, the idea that the kill ratio would be uh, not in the favor of Ukraine was always nonsense. But again, I think this is what you do. You want to promote, um, you know, you want to keep the war going. This is the story you have to tell the people that you're winning, you're winning. I guess this is the same reason why we've been, you know, learning. Uh, promising the Ukrainians perhaps will uh, intervene in the future if they also continue fighting. So it just, uh, I don't know, the whole thing reads of <laughs> war, war, war propaganda having to be walked back, though. But uh, yeah, that's just my take. And uh, yeah, sorry for interrupting you, <laughs> Alexander. No, I was, I, mean, I was. I agree with every point you've just made, Glenn. And I have to say, I found Ray's account of the events in 1968 really absolutely remarkable. And one can see the parallels. But one can also see certain differences because that leak had huge consequences in 1968. The New York Times ran it presumably in a different way in those days. Um, It affected policy. This time, and I tend to agree, by the way, I'm very suspicious of this 21-year-old man story. I mean, it doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. This time, the policy continues as before. The debate is as shut down as it was previously. What we've had is this young man has now been arrested. We've had um, comments, you know, from the media, you know, how how did these papers come through? But no real examination of them. And it's like there's been a closing of ranks. 
we're going to continue doing exactly what we did and we're going to pretend that the original narrative is still true despite all the facts in the documents which i think everybody now accepts are authentic documents we say otherwise mm -hmm. i mean would you agree with that right i mean would you agree that yes uh, i agree that there's been a sort of recidivism so to speak uh there was an initial flurry uh, on Good Friday, when this thing came out, um, the 8th, 9th, 10th, all the way up to the 13th, very damaging titles and articles in the Washington Post. I was quite amazed. And it made me think that there was a faction, at least, at the Pentagon or in the intelligence services or White House that really wanted to say, look, uh, the picture we have been portraying of Ukrainian success is bogus. Uh, they don't even have any air defense left. Uh, this is going to grind on at least until next year. Uh, there's going to be no possibility of any negotiations. I mean, that stuff uh, is true. That last one was from a DIA assessment. So that stuff was out there. And I looked at the BBC as well. And they were doing the same thing for that period of time. Now, as Alexander points out, regrettably, <laughs> they've gone back to the original narrative. So the question is whether you can you can plug that back into the bottle, you know, whether you can stuff those real stories into the bottle, or whether those people who are responsible for many, making sure those stories got up and out, whether they'll bide their time. And with some of the Republicans now saying, we're not going to give any more aid to these guys. Uh, they're skimming it off the top. Uh, there are some very prominent Republicans gathering together now saying this is a fool's errand. Uh, let's let's look at how you mean you're not monitoring this. You mean they're, they're getting 400 million off. Uh, let's look at this. So I think the handwriting's on the wall. The denouement is coming pretty soon. The more so an election year is looming and real decisions are going to have to be made. And to the degree that this initial spurt of accurate information found its way into these august pages is hopeful to me. I don't know how much longer these true stories can be suppressed. Indeed. Can I just ask, because it's interesting you talked about the fact that there might be a, a faction a realist faction, a faction that's clearly becoming concerned. Because, by the way, that was my initial view when I saw these papers. I thought this was exactly what must be happening. And I don't know whether you read Seymour Hersh's pieces. I mean, we're all reading now Seymour Hersh. And my goodness, he was all he was there in 1968 and 69. Right. And he's now still there, turning things out still. But he actually has been writing some very interesting things about the fact that parts of the intelligence community are now becoming very exasperated indeed with the current administration, that they're very um, exasperated with Sullivan and Blinken in particular, that they don't think that these people are up to the tasks that they've been given, that they don't really take account of real situation in any way, and that they're very unhappy with the decision-making. I mean, that seems to correlate rather well with um you know the theory about the leaks being also the product of a faction yes i believe so alexander and again mm -hmm. um, the leaks themselves are interesting 
it's the fact that the Post and the BBC and to a degree the Times decide this time they would not suppress this story. This time they would run it. I mean, they had the option of suppressing. I mean, after all, Russian hacking of the DNC, the head of the CrowdStrike outfit that did the forensics on the DNC testified, got a pencil? 5 December 2017, that there was absolutely no evidence of any hacking, no exfiltration from the DNC, not by the Russians, not by anybody else, December 5, 2017. Do my neighbors know this? Do my very highly educated people in New York know this? No. Why? Because the New York Times has suppressed that story since, do the math, since December 2017. So my point is that my experience, recent experience especially, is that it is be, it is capable, it is probable that the, that the New York Times default position here would be to suppress all this. Some of them gave the someone gave them the go-ahead uh, i think you know it's it's really questionable who you know if you look at the vietnamic uh, example here's leslie gelb the big promoter of the domino theory and all this stupid in retrospect stuff i have to confess that i was not persuaded for a long time i mean I mean, the, the din of propaganda can do this to you. I mean, even Dan Ellsberg, to a degree. Domino theory, yes. But then when Dan saw what was going on on the ground and came home and saw Leslie Gelb manning up to the fact that he could prevent a war with China. I mean, last time we went, <laughs> we went to the Chinese border. I think the name of the place was Korea, right? If memory serves, that was not a good idea, right? So these guys are serious people. They saw what their patriotic duty was to do and did it. Now, let's take General Mark Milley. As some of you know, I have named him as a suspect. <laughs> Judge uh, Napolitano said, McGovern. This is the highest uniformed officer the armed forces. Are you accusing him of leaking? I said, no, I'm not accusing him. Um, I'm praising him. I think that was a great idea. <laughs> now, I don't know it was Millie, but Millie has been saying for months, well, he used to be saying, nobody's going to win this thing. Now is the time to talk. Um, the, the next several months are just not going to have any resolution. Uh, nobody's going to win. Now, that's a bizarre thing to say as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was brought back into, into shape, of course. The other thing that Mark Milley did, which I'll never forget, is when Trump was going AP on the Hershey Highway, as we would say in the Bronx, when he was going a little berserk and threatening to do all kinds of things like make war on China, what did Milley do? He called up his Chinese counterparts. Hey, look, please, uh, I, we got this covered. Uh, I, not, I'm not going to let them do any nuclear stuff. So yeah. bizarre. Yes, bizarre. Uh, out of the ordinary. Uh, sure. Good thing. Well, at the time, a good thing. But now if Miller doesn't call up his opposite number in, the, in Russia and say the same thing with the Russia. Anyway, the precedent was not really good. 
but I think Millie did the right thing. Very unusual at that point of time. So Millie has done unusual things. So did Les Geld. Millie has a good chance of escaping without being fingered on this thing, as Les Gelb did for the rest of his life, really. So why not? Now it could could may not be Millie, maybe somebody else who has a conscience and say, you know, we're going to let all these people just be killed out of our own vanity, and we know nobody's going to win this damn thing. So there are lots of people, and the ones that you, Alexander, suggest, the ones that Cy Hirsch has quoted, the people who have their heads screwed on right in the CIA and other intelligence agencies, see what's going on, and look at these guys, you know, Sullivan and Blinken and uh, Noland. I mean, uh, well, uh, there was a, a very, very important statesman who recently, that is last fall, described them as crazy. Now, this was no ordinary statesman. This was the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. He was asked at a Q&A, you know, he does these speeches for 45 minutes and then three and a half hours for Q&A. No notes, just okay. This was at Baldai, October 27, if memory serves. He's asked Q&A, Mr. President, how do you understand this urge by American policymakers uh, to pick a fight with China at the same time, they're sending all kinds of military equipment and making war with us in Ukraine. How do you, now here's the answer. I've got this committed to memory. It's not logical. It doesn't make any sense. I think it's crazy. I attribute it to overweening arrogance mm. and a feeling of impunity, period, end quote. Well, I happen to agree that that's what it should be attributed to, but it doesn't matter what McGovern thinks, it's what Putin thinks and what he has to contend with when his military leaders say, look, you know, these guys are crazy. We have to be razor sharp in being able to re reply and even preempt if need be. I just think that- uh, that, that yeah, very just Carry on, Glenn. Carry on. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> we should have a hands up system. <laughs> well, I was just going to say the the the, the aspect. Uh, one of the leaks, which uh, I thought was most important, was uh, this uh, this uh, recognition that uh, Ukraine is not winning and it 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 can't win, and in fact, it's losing uh, now that uh, without air defenses, of course, the, the the kill ratio and the losses will be more unfavorable to 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 Ukraine because I think. Uh, um, as as long as people believe that Ukraine could win this, then this was kind of the price worth paying all these weapons and all these deaths. But uh, uh, but 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 now it's very hard to argue why 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 we would continue fighting to the last Ukrainian if if uh, if they can't even win. Then uh, it it just seems cruel instead of uh, virtuous. So I think that this was a important uh, leak. Uh, of course, the fact that they're uh, the, the extent of corruption and all the <laughs> disappearance of money, obviously, I think also will have uh, significant influence. Mm. Uh, it seems at least that Republicans mm. seems to be pushing back on on on, on this issue. But uh, but yeah, it was interesting this um, the, the irrational irrationality of going after both the Russians and the Chinese at the same time because near retired uh, General um, 
uh, Kellogg, he, you know, he made this argument that, you know, this was a, this was uh, the fight in Ukraine was good because, you know, they, they could, uh, you know, defeat and, and weaken the Russians, uh, you know, knocking out a great power rival without even using any American lives. They could just fight with Ukrainians. So this was a, you know, this was a great uh, war. But uh, and then the argument was, and then we can put all our focus on China instead, instead of dealing with the Russians. But as this war isn't going in this direction, it seems that the opposite is happening now. You know uh, the, the, that the Russian the war against Russia is now exhausting all the resources and attention of the West. Meanwhile, you know they're not having any any of the same resources left for China. So, um, I, it's I'm, I'm not sure what what the security community or sorry intelligence community is uh, reacting to. Is it the, the losses in Ukraine? Is it the strategic <clears throat> mistakes on the American part? Is it the the, the corruption? I because um, uh, there must be some infighting there, wouldn't there? Or uh, mm. is this all n nothing in the open, I guess? Well, I, I could speculate. Uh, I think that you have to give a possibility to the fact that there are still some people in the intelligence community that have their heads screwed on right, okay? God willing, yeah. They know or it's always possible, okay? Now, now, they know what blowing up Nord Stream, what the effects of that will be. Now, we haven't seen them yet, but we will see them in the next year or two. This is blowing up a pipeline crucial uh, to German and other European industry, the heating homes next winter. Um, it's, a, it's an act that uh, I, would be, I would be surprised was even suggested. But I can understand that a fellow, an adolescent like Jacob Sullivan, who knows nothing about the world, but knows a lot about the law and running campaigns for Hillary Clinton and working for Joe Biden, that he would say, hey, I know how we can prevent the Russians from making inroads in Europe. What we could do, it? can we blow those things up? Now, what I would have hoped at that point is that the fellow we thought might be an adult in the room. His name is uh, William, what's it, Bill Burns, okay? He knows which end is up. And at that point, he might have said, Mr. President, do you know what this would mean? Or Mr. Sullivan, he reports to Sullivan after all. That's the way it works. The head of CIA reports to the National Security Advisor. But he didn't. He said, go ahead, let's see if we can do it. And a couple of months later, they come back and yeah. Yep, we can do it. We work with the Navy and the Norwegians are going to help us. Man, it's going to be great. We're going to blow it up. And then I would have hoped that Bill Burns would have said, this is crazy. You blow up the pipeline, I quit. He didn't say that. Mm -hmm. President said, sounds like a good idea. Blow it up. Mm -hmm. Bill Burns to his people, blow it up. Now, were the people whose heads are screwed on right not the operatives who like to blow up things, but people who like to look at foreign policy equities in Europe, for, for Pete's sake. Were they pleased with this? No. They, even Cy Hirsch said they, they couldn't believe that this kind of thing would go on, uh, especially when it actually happened. Now, the marvel is that the Germans, who were affected first and foremost about this, are still acting like the, they're acting with sheepish, submissiveness of the same kind 
they exhibited 90 years ago when the Reichstag, when the uh, German parliament was burned down, the Nazis had a minority of about 44% and everybody else caved before them. They were afraid of them. Nobody spoke out, least of all the moral leadership, the church and other people. And we know what, what happened then. That was 90 years ago, February 1933. Okay, now, <clears throat> here we are. 78 years after World War II. Now, one can understand why the Germans would feel that they would have to act like children and maybe adolescents for that immediate post-war period, how much they depended upon us. Uh, there was a, a Russian threat in those days. There isn't anymore, let me tell you. Anyhow, <clears throat> they just can't get out of the habit. And uh, I have been saying for years that I hope they'll grow up and stand on their own two feet. I fully expect, I don't fully expect anything anymore. I still hope that under the impact of, of the US blowing up Nord Stream, that the German government will have to, if it's democratic at all, will have to succumb to those people who say, this is, you know, this is no longer a good idea to follow the US willy-nilly. Maybe Macron has an idea here. Maybe we should be just a little bit more independent. Maybe we don't have to react with sheepish submissiveness anymore can i just can i just um, comment on that because i know germany reasonably well my wife's uh, family um, um, she has a german family i travel to germany quite regularly i've been interested in germany for a long long time and the thing about germany to always remember is what a very comfortable place it became under American protection as a sort of American protectorate. What a very prosperous place it was. It was always a place where, well, you didn't really want to rock the boat with the Americans because, well, why would you? I mean, this is working so well. And of course you had your, you could do your trade with the Russians. You could do your trade with anybody you wanted. You could do set up things in Europe, but always, Ultimately, the Americans were the backstop of this. They were the people who had created, to a great extent, the prosperous Germany that Germany now is. What is now changing? And I think it is unsurprising that the Germans collectively are finding this very difficult to come to terms with. What is now changing is that whereas in the 1950s, America wanted a prosperous and rich Germany, Today, the United States is acting in a way that is going to make Germany a lot less prosperous and a lot less rich and a lot more uncomfortable. And when over time that understanding filters through and people in Germany start to see that this relationship, which had been working so well for so long, and so much in Germany's interests and so much in their personal interests isn't working like that anymore, then you will start to see that change. And we're not quite there yet, and it's unsurprising given the long history, but already one can see the sort of bits of unease starting to filter through. And I think you're going to see more of that um, grow over time. And when people do wake up and face the fact that the Nord Stream event was in fact, as Seymour Hirsch 
says, and as I think all three of us actually think, then of course that will be a, um, a major clarifying event for many Germans. Well, I think it's not just the Germans. I think the wider the the, the Europeans, uh, uh, what what they wanted from the relationship is is, is not what they're going to get anymore. Because uh, after the Cold War, you had again all power concentrated in the U.S. It's the unipolar moment, and you know the, the Americans, of course, see the, the Europeans as an ally to facilitate this uh, global hegemony. But but the Europeans, we, you know, we we wanted uh, uh, you know for the EU to work collectively. And strengthen itself, so we would rule with the Americans, uh, collective hegemony, if you will. So to have parity or or, or equality, and of course, the German was the economic train driving this forward. But uh, but I think uh, as the world becomes more multipolar, uh, the uh, I think the United States well not think it already then demands more economic loyalties from us. That is, you know, don't buy the Russian energy, don't buy the Chinese technologies, you know, don't deal with countries which we don't want you to deal with. And if we isolate ourselves that much, we become ex not just economically poor, as we see now, but we become also more uh, excessively reliant on the US to the extent we're not, we don't have political autonomy anymore. So suddenly, we begin to feel like vassals, as uh, you know, to quote uh, uh, President Macron. And uh, so, instead of you know sharing equality with U.S. Uh, glo collective global hegemon, we're now uh, vassals of the United States, which kind of uh, alters the calculations. You know, this you know comfortable coexistence or co-leadership with the U.S. I think uh, uh, I don't think Macron will be the only one speaking up as uh, Europe. Uh, it loses both its economic and its political power over the the, the next month or years. I'm not sure if you agree, Ray, or if you see it differently. Well, no, I I, I agree, and I'm really welcoming Alexander's comments. He apparently has been in Germany more recently than I. Mm. I served five years there and got to know the Germans pretty well. <clears throat> um, I guess what bothers me is uh, that no German politician has the stamina or the guts to face up to Scholz, the chancellor, and mm -hmm. say, okay, Herr Scholz, we, we have seen many times the video of you and President Biden on February 7, 2022, we're talking about uh, what Biden said, uh, the end of Nord Stream. Uh, he was quizzed by a Reuters woman. And she said, well, how are you going to end the Nord Stream? And Biden said, I promise you, that's what's going to happen. Now, she turned, she, she's a really gutsy and bilingual reporter. She turns to Scholz and she says, Kanzler. Herr, Herr Kanzler, uh, was, was halten Sie davon? Who do you think of that? And if you, if you look at the videotape, uh, here's uh, the proverbial deer caught in the headlights. But what does he say? He goes back to the default. He says, we do everything together. There's nothing important we do that we don't do together. Okay, now, why is it? Now, no German politician or German journalist has said to Herr Scholz, Herr Kanzler, did you do this with Biden together? 
or were you ivorashed? Were you completely mm-hmm. uh, surprised by this when it blew up in July? Please, what did you know? And when did you know it? So mm-hmm. uh, my hopes are always dampened by the obvious reluctance of German mm-hmm. officials and journalists to do their job. They're so damn afraid that they won't even ask the normal questions of, did Biden tell you on a February the 7th of last year, did he tell you he's going to blow the... And if he didn't, what kind of an ally yeah. is that? Okay, yeah. So that's what gives me a pause with thinking that the Germans are going to come around anytime soon. I, I didn't say they would come around soon. I said right. they will eventually come around. You're actually making a, a, a very good point, Ray, because um, one of the great problems, and it's not just specific to Germany, unfortunately, is the atrophy that we have seen in political will and political ability and capacity in Europe, which um, as somebody who has been on the fringe of politics in Europe, in Greece and in Britain, I mean, my aunt was a minister in the Greek government. I mean, it is extraordinary to me to see the extent to which it has happened. And I cannot understand why it has happened to the extent that it does. I mean, you get all kinds of people who come up with various conspiratorial explanations, which I'm not going to waste time on on this programme. But it is a fact mm-hmm. that the political classes across Europe um, all seem to speak the same tune and it is very much a tune that they're getting from Washington. This will change, but it will not come from above. It will come from below. I mean, mm. it's sad to say we do not have a Helmut Schmidt or uh, Olaf Palme or um, a Charles de Gaulle or indeed a Margaret Thatcher, much as I didn't support her, I was very strongly opposed to her in my day. But, you know, we don't have people like that today, a Willy Brandt. We just don't. How it's come about that that's the situation, it's extraordinary to me. But that is the reality. The fact that we, the best we can do is Emmanuel Macron tells its own story. It's, uh, well, from our perspective, the subservience displayed now is so extreme because uh, usually, if you have a convincing narrative, at least you know we can all stand behind it and uh, you know pretend as if we believe in it. But but this Nord Stream story, this is why it, it's so exceptional to me because there's there's no narrative anymore. Because you know first you know we're told that this could only be a state actor, and Russia blowing up its own pipeline for no good reason was the only possible explanation. You know, despite you know Washington's continuous uh, threats against pipeline and also celebrating it after it's been blown up. But then, you know, when Seymour Hirsch released this report that it was the United States and Norway that was behind the attack, suddenly then, you know, Washington argues, no, it's a pro-Ukrainian group, you know, non-state actor. So suddenly Washington, yeah. so it wasn't Russia after all, again, not even a state actor, as we previously claimed, but some Ukrainians on a sailboat. So, and furthermore, you know, there was this argument that the U.S. intelligence community knew this all along. But still, they were willing to blame Russia, even as uh, you have people like Jens Stoltenberg of NATO threatening possible war with Russia as a consequence of this alleged attack, which we knew wasn't real to begin with. Uh, So the story gets just, um, it just so much uh, admission to lying, even though the the, the new story is uh, just as false. But again, for me, the the really extraordinary moment was when this uh, 
story about the pro-Ukrainian group starting to fall apart. You know, then you had this Washington Post article, uh, actually with the title and text being, you know, we should all stop talking about Nord Stream because we will not like the answers we may, may find. And, you know, no, NATO solidarity must be prioritized. I mean, if you're sitting in Germany and you're a politician or a journalist, and now, you know, the, the narrative has shifted so many times, and now we're at the point where they're actually telling you, stop talking about it because uh, this is not going to be good if you, you know, if you get all the real answers behind this, it will rupture solidarity because you'll find that we attacked you. I mean, this is uh, obscene, and you still <laughs> remain obedient and, and, and do not uh, raise your voice. For me, this is... This is the most extraordinary thing I have ever seen, probably. Well, glad I have one for you. <clears throat> Are you ready? <clears throat> Six Ukrainian divers and a doctor walk into a bar, <clears throat> I mean, into a yacht. <laughs> it sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? Uh, let, me, let me get back to the serious aspect of this. As you know, I was asked to give a briefing to the UN Security Council that was the 21st of February, and the, the subject was the blowing up of Nord Stream. Uh, the Russians uh, thought that it might be a good idea to appeal to the UN Security Council to launch an independent investigation as to who did this, okay? Now, on that very morning, all members of the UN Security Council got a memo, a serious memo from Denmark, Sweden and Germany saying, no need for an independent investigation. We got it covered. Leave it to us. We'll investigate the whole thing. And all the US and Britain and all the vassals uh, pointed to that memorandum and said, look, they got, they got it going. You know, they, we don't need an independent. Only the Chinese representative went along and endorsed. The Chinese representative said, you know, if the UN Security Council isn't up to doing an independent investigation of an act of war, I mean, you know, what are we doing here? The Brazilian representative, curiously enough, was sort of, you know, wishy-washy on the whole thing. Anyhow, what happened? Well, Jeffrey Sachs from Columbia, terrific guy, he gave a wonderful talk outlining all the things that needed to be said. So I was... I was left to pick up whatever pieces I could pick up. But among the things that Jeffrey Sachs had said earlier was, look, Sweden already did its investigation. It, it waited till the air cleared, right? And then it put on the, the, these divers are pretty good. They know every inch of the Baltic right around that area. They went down, they investigated, and they came up. And, and the people said, well, what'd you find? And the Swedes said, we can't tell you, it's a secret. It would harm national security. We're not even gonna tell our Swedish citizens. <laughs> so now we're being asked on the 21st of February to allow Sweden and Denmark and Germany, all NATO allies, to do a independent investigation. There was a, a teaching point that came out of all this for me, okay? It took about six weeks for the thing to come to a vote. It had to come to a vote since it was a formal resolution. And when I looked at the results, I was amazed. Three votes for an independent investigation. Russia, China, and Brazil, okay? How many against? 
Nobody voted against. How many abstentions? 12. <laughs> well, it ties a new record. A new record was set earlier this year. Okay, so 12 abstentions. What does that tell you? That tells you it was just, just too damn embarrassing to vote against a <laughs> investigation, okay? So what does that mean? If you look, if you if you divide the people in the world by who supported that vote and who came against it, the vast majority are for an independent investigation. And this just leads me to repeat what I've been saying for a couple of months now. Uh, there's no longer a unipolar world. You can look at it as a multipolar world, and that's quite true in a sense, but I prefer a bipolar world. And what you end up with is on one side, the lily white West incorporated in NATO and the rest of the world. China, 1.4 billion. India, almost 1.5 billion. Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Brazil. Come on, give me a break. All those people, 80% of them are people of color. Now, is this a good thing? No, it's not a good thing. This is America's original sin, racism. We don't seem to understand that no longer can we dominate things, exercise hegemony. You know, hegemony comes from the Greek word hegemon, okay? And it means not only to lead, but to dominate, okay? Now, hegemony is good for the West, especially for the lily white West. And the supreme, the, the supreme misleading claim is that the West has isolated Russia. Yeah, right. It's put Russia in with 80% of the rest of the world. <clears throat> they happen to be people of color. They happen to be mostly people who have been objects of colonialism by the lily white West. This is a very dangerous, very volatile situation. And that's why I see the Chinese coming forward now and saying to the whole world, look, we have a virtual military alliance with Russia right now. Witness what our defense minister is saying in Moscow even this week. So don't fool around because we have Putin's back. Even in the unlikely uh, chance that Putin's back, own back is up against the wall in Ukraine, we're not going to let him lose, okay? You know what the two-front war looks like? Well, you got to plan for it because we're in this for the duration. That's what the Chinese are trying to say. And maybe before I finish, I'll just quote Putin. <clears throat> First thing that this <clears throat> Li Fu, the Chinese defense minister, the first thing he did getting off the plane was go to meet with not his opposite member, defense minister Shoigu, but uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, the president. And here's what Putin said. Only one sentence, but it's worth repeating. Please pay attention. We are working actively through our military departments, <clears throat> cooperating in the field of military technical cooperation, conducting joint exercises in different theaters, in different theaters, in the Far East region and in Europe, at sea and on land and in the air, Putin said, according to the Kremlin. <clears throat> different theaters, that's a two-front situation, folks, and military technical responses, 
that's the catchword that Putin was using 14, 15 months ago to spell out what Russia's reaction would be if we continued to pursue our policies toward the Ukraine. So this is it's not only getting dangerous, getting very, very declarative on China's on China's part. Look, please realize you log you you dumbheads in Washington, you might not believe two years ago <clears throat> that you are, that Russia and China are joined at the hip. You thought that China was was squeezing. That was the word that Biden used. Squeezing Russia. Ate the case. It's it's kind of a it's a fraternal embrace. It's not a squeeze. That kind of so uh, this is what I think the new tectonic shift is. And having been having watched this this problem, my first uh, portfolio <coughs> at CIA analysis was Sino-Soviet relations. That was 1963. I should be embarrassed, but I'm rather proud that it's been six decades watching this thing. And the last thing, or really, last thing I'll say is that when I was watching Sino-Soviet relations. I remember 1964, total trade turnover, $200 million, drop in the bucket. What's the total trade over, turnover trade going to be this year? $200 billion with a B. Now, I checked with my mathematician sons, and they both told me, Dad, you're right. That's a thousand times more. That alone could speak volumes. Mm, and it's going to increase. And I think that you're completely correct, Ray. It's something also I get the sense that people in Washington incredibly never expected. <laughs> I mean, they didn't understand that uh, this would end in this way. And I wonder why. I wonder why they found it so difficult to understand that if you're horrid to the Russians, and you're horrid to the Chinese at one and the same time. At some point, these two very powerful countries would yeah. compare notes with each other and say we're better off together, um, given that we're both being pressured in this way, than you know, standing apart and being picked off apart. Uh, how how is it that people in the US, the leadership of the US, weren't able to see that. Is this again an intelligence problem or, or is it a question of politicians not wanting to believe that something bad like this could happen? Well, Alexander, if you look at the kinds of people who have been advising these sophomores, and I talk about Jacob Sullivan and Tony Blinken, uh, they're the academicians turned to politicians or operatives like Michael McFaul, mm. who, for some strange reason, Obama was persuaded to make head of Russian policy at the National Security Council. And McFaul is, is not with it. I mean, after, here's an example, two weeks ago, after, or three weeks, when the when Xi Jinping and Putin made it demonstrably obvious that they were together as never before, and it's been close before, what did McFaul say two days later? He said that Putin has now humiliated Xi Jinping. What what McFaul 
picked out of a joint statement <clears throat> one phrase <clears throat> played up its significance to say the Chinese will never go along with this. He can expect that as Putin can expect a very strong adverse relation in, re reaction in China. Two days after that, the Chinese defense minister announced more joint exercises, more joint patrols, more joint this and more joint. And then a week later, Chinese defense minister comes to Moscow. So, so some of these people are really not with it. Here's another. Here's a, another uh, headline from I think from yesterday. Why is China's Xi Jinping still not calling Zelensky? <laughs> well, and last but not least, uh, here's a an arch realist used to be. Uh, has been realist. His name is Stephen Walt. He teaches at Harvard. Okay, he used to be a realist. Uh, they say now, what is he saying now? What we got to do is get China to use its influence and its leverage to get the Russians to knock it off in Ukraine. Hello, well, doesn't Steve Walt realize that the Chinese realize that after Ukraine? China is next as the main target. I mean, it's clear in all the documents. You don't have to be paranoid to realize it. Doesn't he understand that? Apparently not. So even the most realist people are acting out of this paradigm that we can still work our will on the world. Let me, let me just add this. Um, there's a great, great uh, documentary out now. It's called The Movement and the Madman. It's about 1969, how Nixon almost used nuclear weapons against North Vietnam, maybe even China. Now, in that thing, it's, it's elucidated in a very precise way that the US thought that Russia would be able to influence China to stop, stop supporting Vietnam. The, the phrase went, the Kremlin will use its influence in attenuating the war. And who is the author of that thought? <clears throat> Avril Harriman. So, a big shot, right? As the Russians would say, right? So here's McGovern, and he looks at the history and he sees, well, wait a second now. The Russians sold the Vietnamese down the river in 1954. What the hell kind of influence does Russia have in Vietnam now? or with China, at, with which they're in a great dispute. Zero. So McGovern keeps writing these memos, writing these memos. They never get up to Harriman's level because Harriman knows all the answers, right? And the thing continues. I had to go to an outside publication, uh, Problems of Communism, which would accept uh, think pieces like this. And I did my first publication on the outside, May, June of uh, 1966. I said, look, it, it's crazy to think that the Russians are gonna pull your chestnuts out of the fire. Number one, they don't have any incentive to. Number two, they don't have the ability to, for God's sake, get off this thing. They're not gonna bail you out. So it, it's one of these shibboleths that you get into the mode that you know, we can do pretty much what we want because uh, very august people say it's smart. And hey, uh, Yale professor, uh, previous uh, U.S. ambassador to Russia, they all say that, you know, well, give me a break. They don't know anything and they're going to get us a pile of trouble.
I mean, the, the thing, Grant. No, I just uh, well, I, I I don't think necessarily it's uh, uh, being being stupidity. I think it's just uh, it's the curse of the success because once you had this unipolar moment, you know you you feel like you're winning. And I'm uh, you know there's a quote by Churchill where he says you know when you're winning, um, if you feel, yeah something along the lines of well. Yeah, when you're when you're winning, it feels it's it's as if everything you do is correct. Uh, no, no one's going to say you're not doing correct stuff as long as you're winning. And I think this is the problem during the unipolar order when all this power is constant. Bad paraphrasing, by the way. But, but when all this power is concentrated uh, in the United States for such a long period of time after the Cold War, uh, you know, it's it's hard to go against these policies. Even huge mistakes from you know Afghanistan to Iraq, Libya, all of this can you know to some extent be absorbed, given that. Mm-hmm. Uh, them the mistakes given that it has so much power but at some points of course uh, this will begin to break but uh, uh, but, but but nonetheless that, that's maybe a miscalculation of its own policies but but for for me I'm also taken a bit back by this narrative about Russia and China I, I published a book in 2016 which just looked at how this strategic partnership was organized towards uh, reorganizing Eurasia because they need each other for you know developing this new uh, uh, new in- industries and technologies decoupled from the United States they needed to have this uh, pan Eurasian infrastructure connectivity in which they have railroads roads shipping lanes uh, you know both by sea and uh, land across Eurasia they need each other to decouple from the dollar the new payment systems you know the development banks all this this entire economic infrastructure which they want to use to develop a multipolar world they, they you know they, they they become each other's most important uh, partner and then and then suddenly I, you know, it's not just in the United States. I look up in this country as well in the newspapers. Like, oh no, no, they're just uh, they're desperate. They actually hate each other. They're just doing this because they're 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 against the Americans at the moment, and this will all unravel. And most of all, they just want to get rid of the Chinese and come back running to us as soon as they have an opportunity. I don't think people realize the huge tectonic shifts that's happened. You know, the Russians effectively abandoned a three hundred year long uh, Western centric foreign policy since Peter the Great, and instead now looks towards the east for modernity and key partnerships is quite extraordinary and uh, yeah and I, I would just also just add I agree uh, I agree on this uh, China issue I mean uh, this was what what was in all the media as well when you know why why isn't uh, you know can Macron convince China to put enough pressure on uh, Putin to you know end this war and 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 no one happens to mention that we already rejected having talks with Russia. We rejected diplomacy, we rejected the Chinese peace plan. So what we're really asking for the Chinese is not just for pressuring Russia to negotiate, but we're pressuring Russia to capitulate and pull out and accept NATO coming in. I mean, it it, it can't possibly happen. Uh, it's just uh, it's. I feel like people are they just keep talking in cliches and these slogans, and I don't think they realize uh, yeah the, the the problem we're in the what 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 we actually built up a quite a powerful uh duo who's uh, uh yeah we we're, we're making enemies of both of them at the same time it's and it's a great shame because uh i think if 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 we put forward a peace proposal for for ukraine russia china doesn't want this war it will be happy to provide incentives and negotiate an end but this idea that you know and and this i think we could 
make China a partner in trying to find a settlement. But this idea that China is going to be our partner to make Russia capitulate when they already know that the Americans said the Chinese are next. This is, uh, it's just, it's insane. It's, I can't, <laughs> I can't, yeah, I can't comprehend that they, you know, they actually believe, is this talking point or is this actual genuine beliefs? Well, let, let me just uh, comment very briefly. In uh, Catholic theology, there's a, there's a concept called uh, ir irredeemable ignorance. Okay, and uh, you know if you're irredeemably ignorant, then you get off the hook. You don't go right to hell. You, you spend some time in purgatory, and if you, you know you, you, then you maybe get to heaven, right? Okay. So, uh, are these people irredeemably ignorant? Now, if you look at people like Jacob Sullivan and Tony Blinken, they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They went to the very best schools. They were told from the outset that they are exceptional, uh, that they are indispensable. So I think it's a, a combination of this kind of arrogance and the feeling of impunity. Now, I sound like I'm quoting uh, Vladimir Putin. I am. That's how he explains this odd notion that they take on both China and Russia at the same time. He said, overweening arrogance and a feeling of impunity. Now, no one has taken it on the chin. Nobody, no American policymakers have been held accountable for the grossest mistakes, including a war of aggression namely Iraq. And so this feeling of impunity uh, does sort of uh, infect the minds of these uh, well-heeled people. And uh, there's no check on that because they're, they're telling Biden what to do. And um, the military seems to be, <clears throat> seems to be feckless in being, well, Secretary Austin is part of the club, I suppose. So that's what, how I see this arrogance and also the feeling that the Russians really are inferior. Uh, they really are a, a, a gas station uh, disguised as a country. Uh, how did McFall get Obama to say those kinds of stupid things, you know? Uh, well, it, it looks like they, they re really feel that they can flick Russia off. Well, even if they feel that way, with China on the scene now, you know, it's, it's supreme arrogance as well as a sense of impunity that seems to reign here as dangerous. I, I just wanted to say that um, Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow, I don't know how it's been seen in the, U, the US, but I get the sense that in European capitals, it was like it, it created a frisson. It was a shock. I mean, it wasn't expected that it would be quite like that, that Xi Jinping and Putin would be seen so visibly close to each other. And um, Glenn, I think, was talking about, you know, how there were lots of delusions about this, this idea that the Chinese can somehow be persuaded to put pressure on the Russians. And it went, it was the moment, I think, when Xi Jinping and Putin were seen together, that suddenly people in Europe understand understood that that wasn't really the case. 
actually, that in fact the Chinese are not going to put that pressure, that in fact the Chinese and the Russians really are coming together, that this is for real. And you mentioned the fact that trade between Russia and China has increased. Glenn has written wonderfully well about the interconnections that are now taking place between the Russians and the Chinese, and not just the Russians and the Chinese, but all the Eurasian countries. Um, we had, by the way, the ambassador of India to Moscow, one of our programs recently, and he was talking about how India is also involved to a certain extent in all of this, even though the Indians have some issues with the Chinese still, as is very obvious. But nobody in Europe notices, nobody sees, nobody understands that these are things that are really happening, that these are for real, that you know the Chinese leader has to go to Moscow and be seen talking so closely with Putin for people to understand. Well, there were privileged people in Washington in your day. They also went to the great schools and all of those things, but they listened, or at least I get the sense they did. They listened more to people like yourself. Uh, what has happened? I, I mean, maybe maybe in Washington, people were more skeptical about the Chinese. You know, the, they, they understood better that you know China and Russia weren't were indeed coming together than they have in Europe. But do you not also feel that there's been a decline in the quality of leadership in the United States as well, and that people are just not seeing these things as they are in ways that wasn't the case in your, you know? in the 60s when JFK was the president and people like that were there. I think you're quite right, Alexander. Um, mm. <clears throat> the training, <clears throat> the education such as it is that the students of foreign policy and international relations are now given, um, it doesn't measure up to what we experienced back in the 60s, <clears throat> 70s. <clears throat> um, take, uh, Ambassador Mike McFall, for example, mm. he heads up a, a thing at Stanford uh, that is really an embarrassment when you consider what Stanford used to be. Um, it's people by ideologues. It's people that are either Sinophobes or Russophobes. Uh, there's no real education on Russian history. There's no real education on what really drives Russian national interest. The last one to say something positive about Russian national interests happens to be the fellow who's head of the CIA right now, Bill Burns. <laughs> Let me remind people, uh, on February 1st, 2008, when it started to be bruited about that Ukraine and Georgia were going to be made members of NATO, okay? Lavrov, recently appointed foreign minister, calls Burns in. He says, Mr. Burns, do you know what Nyet means? And uh, Burns said, well, we, um, Nyet means Nyet. Accession to NATO by Ukraine is a red line. Now, my point here is that Bill Burns not only was ambassador to Moscow at the time, but he played it straight. He sent a cable back, which we have thanks to WikiLeaks. And it's authentic. If I've seen one embassy Moscow cable, I've seen 10,000 of them, okay? And what's it say? The title is, <clears throat> Net means Net, Ukraine in NATO, Russia, red line. Pretty clear? Now, what I wanna make is the point that 
even though he knew Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, and Bush were running policy back in 2008 in February, <clears throat> he dared to say, you know, the Russians to a man are really aghast at the notion that Ukraine would become part of NATO. There's unanimity on that. And you know, uh, it has to do with Russian national interests and national security on its border. And, and you know, the Russians are in, they're entitled to have those fears. <laughs> Why do I say it that way? Because ambassadors never say something that cuts across the grain of what they know their masters want to hear. He did it anyway, okay? What happened two months later in Bucharest at a NATO summit, the declaration said Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. Now, why do I point that out? I point that out because people like Bill Burns did know how many, do the math, 2008, what, 2023 now, okay? They did know well, which end was up in those days. Now we have Bill Burns saying the invasion of Ukraine unprovoked, mm. even though Sergei Lavrov told him on the 1st of February 2008, and it's in the cable, <clears throat> this will provoke us. We will have to decide whether we have to intervene in Ukraine. Sergei Lavrov's words. So. To my, to my sorrow, my whole organization is now run by a propagandist who knows better, but salutes and says, no, 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 this war was unprovoked, even though he knows in a way that no one else quite knows personally, that it was not unprovoked, that it was damn well provoked. It wasn't just uh, Americans, though, because, yes, Burns said that, uh, well, we warned in 2008 that, yes, this would... Uh, probably uh, pulling Ukraine into NATO would probably trigger a civil war, which it did. It would also likely then uh, incentivize Russia to intervene, uh, invade on behalf of Donbass, which they did. But uh, the WikiLeaks cables also show that, you know, in discussions with the French ambassador and the German ambassador, that they were of also of the same conviction. And even Angela Merkel, when, uh, you know, she... Uh, she had an interview. She explained in 2008 why she didn't give a and wanted to give a NATO map. There's a membership action plan, so a, a date for joining NATO, a specific plan. Is because she said, well, that would be a, that, that would have been inter interpreted by Moscow as a declaration of war. So how how can you one day say that mm -hmm. this putting Ukraine into NATO is a, considered a declaration of war, and then we say? Well, it was unprovoked. They, they have nothing to fear. They, this is just propaganda. I mean, this is, uh, you know, you can't harmonize these statements. It's, uh, it's um, but, but I, I guess uh, it goes back to ideology. And I think that's why I write about McFall as well, because mm -hmm. I, I read quite a bit about, you know, of his articles in the early 90s when, you know, they have the vision for liberal hegemony. I mean, I mean if you write about, uh, liberal hegemony, you, you can't help but to cite him because uh, him and Goldgaard, they, they, they wrote a lot on this. So I think they're just, they, they, they're, they're committed to this worldview, though, that uh, the Fukuyama view that, you know, this is the end of history, uh, the whole world will become liberal democratic and, uh, you know, fall under US leadership. And yeah, this is uh, how, how it's going to be. And, and anyone who disrupts it, they just uh, hate democracy. I think, uh, I think they got stuck in this view. And uh, uh, I don't know how else to explain it either. That's why I'm uh, curious. 
but um but it does also i also wanted to uh, ask you about how you see the uh, you know due to your experience well not experience your uh, all your decades in the cia uh, how, how do you see the intelligence community um, how they use information these days because uh, i had this conversation recently with uh, colonel douglas mcgregor when he made the point that he doesn't think that biden necessarily well, that, that, that isn't really much in charge anymore, and the information he gets might not always be reliable. And I thought that was an interesting idea that uh, because Biden gets his information from the CIA, on which he also acts in Ukraine, and is it possible that the intelligence community takes on a life of its own and you know becomes more or less a political actor? Uh, I don't want to make it sound like a conspiracy theory, but again, during Russia Gate, we learned that. Uh, you know the former directors of CIA, uh, Morell. You know he he wrote an article. You know before the election, which is kind of interesting. You intervene uh, where he argued that Putin had recruited Trump as an agent of the Russian Federation. This is quite interesting. Like the intelligence agencies shouldn't have political autonomy. And also had uh, you know CIA directors like uh, Hayden arguing that Donald Trump. Uh, has become, uh, you know, sidekick of Putin, and you know, uh, John Brennan, another CIA director, argued that uh, Trump had committed the high treason by uh, by being this close to Putin, and uh, I guess he yeah, lost this this Biden laptop scandal, which uh, you know, this was released right before the election. How how could they avoid Biden losing? So you have fifty senior intelligence officers coming out saying, "Well, this is obviously Russian disinformation." It's all proven that no, that was not the case. But it still it begs the question: Has has the intelligence community taken on a life of its own? Because it appears to work as a political actor as opposed to an instrument of uh, you know the elected government. Glenn, this is a very lamentable situation. The answer to your question is yes. Now, back in the day, uh, when I joined CIA and for the first couple of decades, uh, we could, with a straight face, go around Washington and say, look, I work at a place that has no political agenda. And people would look at it and say, right, right, yeah. You tell them, here in Washington, there's a place with, no, God, give me a break. There's no, everybody has a political agenda. Well, I can tell you that working on Russia, Right up until the 80s, when Bill Casey thought there were three Russians under every rock in Nicaragua, right up until then, and while I was briefing into 85, we could tell the powers that be, the people I briefed personally, vice president, secretaries of state and defense and so forth, we'd tell them what we really felt, for example, about Gorbachev, the real deal, Mr. Vice President. Mr. Secretary of State, the real deal. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what my bosses are telling you about just a more clever commie and that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union will never give up power. I don't care about this. Gorbachev is the real deal. Deal with them, okay? So that was possible then. <clears throat> now, well, I used to say there are two CIAs, the analysis department and the operations now they're pretty much joined that they have <clears throat> the analysts are picking targets for weapons and they're you know when you're in with the operator and, and you're saying you know let's say the operator say hey we're doing this we're going to blow up the Nord stream pipeline and the, the director says it's a good idea because the president mm -hmm. thinks it's a good idea what analyst is going to say that's a crock it's the worst idea i ever heard okay mm -hmm. well not if he wants to keep his job so <clears throat> 
I used to say, don't throw the baby, the analysis division, out with the bathwater. Now I have to say, throw the whole thing out. The CIA has outlived its usefulness. If it can't tell the president what really is, what the situation mm-hmm. is, what Truman, who established the CIA, used to call untainted, untreated intelligence, okay? If they can't do that, then they're worse than nothing, okay? Mm-hmm. Disband them, put the operatives in the Pentagon somewhere where they belong, and try to establish some apolitical analysis unit to which a president should be able to turn and say, okay, give it to me straight, like the analysis unit at the CIA used to be, no more, but I need one place to go. Well, if you were president, wouldn't you like just one place to go to get the straight scoop, for yeah. God's sake? Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, abolish the CIA and the intelligence community. Well, you know, Abril Haynes uh, is the head of, she's the National Intelligence Director, Director of National Intelligence. What she said just a couple of months ago, you know, I'm really optimistic about the counteroffensive that uh, Ukraine is going to make. And, you know, and, and Russia and China, oh, China's just playing it really cool on this, not going too much in this direction, not going too much. Well, that, that misses the, the biggest the biggest event, the tectonic shift that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And Ukraine is not going to have much of a counteroffensive. I don't know where she gets that. She also said that the Russians are running out of ammunition. She probably mistook because there was an honest analyst probably told her the uh, the Ukrainians, the, the the white West, the collective West are running out of ammunition. So the whole thing is a shambles. Uh, mm-hmm. To the degree they report, they report through Jacob Sullivan. And he's going to tell the president what he and Blinken think the president need to know. And the president is probably not all that with it himself. It's a very dangerous situation. And if I'm Putin, I'm looking at this, I'm saying, you have not only incompetence, uh, but you have um, you have this kind of danger. Then uh, craziness is the word then uh, we have to be really, really on tenterhooks here, make sure that we're ready to respond or even preempt mm. the things that happen. I mean, can I, I, I thank, thanks for all of that. I mean, I just get, I've never obviously worked in intelligence in any shape or form, but I have worked in courts and places like this. And one of the things one does understand is that there is a huge amount of difference between inf- information gathering and information analysis they're not the same because an awful lot of the information that you actually get is not reliable you have to have someone sitting down and analyzing it and understanding you know is this consistent with the broader picture and that isn't something that is acquired quickly by the way because it takes a long long time to get a feel for for you know whether something makes sense or whether it doesn't really make sense or whether it's completely discordant and you have to know that you have to have some understanding i suspect and this is my these are these are guesses now of the people on the other side you know the kind of personalities that you're dealing with the economic agencies all of these things and if you're going to combine all of these people, the information gatherers, the operations people, and the analysts, you're going to lose, you're going to completely lose your way. It is inevitable. You're going to pick 
those pieces of the information that you're getting that suit your prejudices and your biases rather than actually get together and understand them it's obvious and i mean as i said this is this is the legal world that i know but working in the legal world in britain one of the things many people don't know is that we were always told that this is the americans have understood this distinction best they are the people who before and during the second world war and afterwards really established analysis as the great thing that you know we are all we all have to follow it's it's they who told us how to analyze information best just just making these points no that's a really good point uh, alexander and i would point out that it was in 1942 Mm. that the foreign broadcast information service was set up during the war of course to analyze japanese broadcasts and to see what could be gleaned from open media from that came a whole subdiscipline of political analysis called media analysis and you know it's not it, it's not brain surgery what you do is you keep really close track of what they say today and you look just as closely at what they say the next day and if there are any changes you have a story now i practiced that right up until the 80s when it became clear that the russians were coming around that gorbachev suggested hey why don't we why don't we destroy a whole class of intermediate and and short-range ballistic missiles, mm-hmm. ours are SS-20s, yours are Pershing twos. Why don't we just destroy them all, okay? <clears throat> and I'm looking at what these people are saying, and I see the Russian statements are becoming more and more amenable to actually doing this. Meanwhile, Reagan, under the influence of Secretary Schultz, is talking to them, finds out that Gorbachev is serious, they set up a doverai no proverai, a, a trust but verify arrangement, and a whole class of intermediate and medium range ballistic missiles is destroyed, unprecedented. Scott Rudder was one of the inspectors to make sure at Botkinsk that all these things were really destroyed. It's amazing, okay? Now, what I'm saying is I was able to get clues as to how serious the Russians were, not only... Uh, from Gavrachov, but from Chernyanko, from Andropov, even before that, they really wanted to have something more stable than than the uh, challenge from Pershing twos, which could decimate them, you know, just real quick. So uh, this subdiscipline of political analysis, media analysis, exists to this day. Except no, <laughs> you have to have this color here. If you know how to do it, or you take the yeah. pains to do it, yeah. why does McGovern print yeah. out thirty-seven pages of Putin's speech and Q and A for three and a half? Well, because there's lots of stuff in there. There's a suggestion that how we get out of the war has to do with Odessa. There are suggestions with the how to he looks at U.S. policies or China uh, <laughs> and and Russia at the same time. Crazy is the word he uses. You have to read this stuff. And then you see it reflected on the ground. So thanks for mentioning that, Alexander. That's close to my heart. 
for a while, I ran the Foreign Broadcast Information Services Analysis Division, which was able to really help Schultz and others realize that Gadabachev was the real deal and we could show it from their own statements and from the front page of Pravda. Well, I mean, uh, Glenn. No, oh, sorry. Glenn. No, no, Glenn, Glenn, go on. Yes. I uh, just, no, sorry. <laughs> I know, it's just, uh, I feel like it's sometimes just uh, the, or the, the, the evidence gets perhaps stopped by the, uh, the, the narrative because we established this very uh, what well these are strong narratives which you can't really shake by no matter what what kind of evidence you you mm. you, you provide like for example with this finding a way now well, well our challenge isn't to do, you know break up any or, or get rid of a class of nuclear weapons now but for example ending ending uh, the war and meeting russian security uh, concerns uh, uh, you know, it should have been very easy to avoid this war and also get an end to it if, you know, NATO would commit itself to stop expanding on, on the Russian border. Again, this shouldn't be very controversial either, given, you know, the U.S. wouldn't permit this either on its side. But uh, I, we, but we often create this strange dichotomy. Um, it's like either, you know, the alternative to NATO expanding to Ukraine would be Russia having a sphere of influence. And I kind of see all the politicians repeating this mantra that this is the... This is the only option, as, as opposed to, you know, what the Russians did suggest and the Ukrainians before the coup, by the way, that, uh, you know, that they, they're, not, they're not in anyone's sphere of influence, that they're able to look both east and west. But but we always have this uh, simple, uh, you know, either you have NATO expansion or you have a Russian sphere of influence. Uh, either you support uh, American hegemony or you're anti-American. Uh, you know, either, you know, America dominates the world or China dominates the world. It's just... Uh, um, sometimes it feels like in, in, irrespective of the information that comes through, uh, if it doesn't fit these narratives, you know, um, it, it, it's not going to do, do any good. It's not going to change any 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 minds because, uh, well, I see the same with uh, with Ukraine now. It's you know, if you support Ukraine, you will continue to send weapons in a war they can't win, so they can fight down to the last man. It's just it's uh, you know, we we create this pro versus anti-Ukrainian and. You know, assigned values, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, but uh, yeah, sorry for yeah, interrupting you twice, Alexander. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't interrupt. Uh, uh, um, I would be interested to hear what Gray has to say about all of this. The, the fact that we're trapped inside narratives, because this is very much. I sometimes wonder, you know, whether this isn't the problem. Um, my my wife, who Ray has met, teaches literature. And she sometimes says, you know, that sometimes uh, uh, the way politics works now has become like a postmodern novel. I mean, we, we're sort of trapped inside this. But anyway, well, what, what do you make of all of that, Ray? That, you know, that this keeping the narrative going is more important than actually deciding a policy nowadays. Well, I think there's a certain naivete involved here. That reality can smack people upside the head, as we say, and that that's coming. That's coming in about two months. Um, you are more expert than I, Alexander, on what's likely on the ground. But I'm guessing that what Xi Jinping and the Brazilians now and the Pope 
and Lukashenko have all proposed the ceasefire talks that this is being offered as kind of a, here's your last chance, okay? Mm-hmm. You think you're going to have a, a counteroffensive? Okay, you try that. You try that and see what happens. But if you want to have some viable uh, sense of being able to get something out of this mm-hmm. deal, you ought to deal now. I don't think I don't think the Russians really want to go to the Dnieper, but I'm convinced they will unless they get some sort of uh, satisfaction on talks. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the denouement is going to slap these naive folks in the back of the head. And it's at that point that I hope that the Washington Post headlines and the BBC headlines on 8, 9, 10, 11 of April will come back into the fore and say, look, this was not winnable. Do we want this thing to continue into next year with no prospect of talks? Or do we want to stop this thing now? Yeah. I think that's absolutely right, actually. I think eventually reality always works through. I mean, it, it, it inevitably does. Um, you, you can create all kinds of... I mean, I, I, I'll just say this again. I've said I know lots of people in Germany, many people. I, I've said this on other occasions. Many, many of Catherine's family in Germany who lived through the Second World War told me how enormously effective the propaganda that they were hearing in Germany was, how utterly compelling it was, how the extent to which they were swept along by it and believed it. It didn't prevent the Russians getting through to Berlin. So, I mean, it's 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 what, uh, yeah, eventually reality does always break through. The problem is how much damage is going to be done in the meantime <laughs> until, until that happens. And also, what is going to happen to our societies and our policymaking solutions? Um, you know, once that happens, will we do what you raised just suggesting? You know, remember those headlines, remember those documents. The one, the one that really stood out for me, by the way, was that there came a point in early March when Ukraine is only firing 1,000 shells a day and it has only 10,000 shells left in reserve. And, you know, the Russians are firing 20,000 shells on any particular day. I mean, that, that, is, that for me was just, mm. that, that was an extraordinary revelation. Um, I hope that one day people will remember that and there will be an examination and that there will be a, an attempt finally to come to terms with the realities of the world. What I worry about is, you know, we've had we've had Iraq, we've had Russiagate, we've never had any proper reckoning from any of these things. And the most terrible thing will be, you know, if it all goes horribly wrong in Ukraine and we still decide, or so I feel, to retreat into more um, narratives and illusions and fantasies and things of that kind, because that would be very dangerous. Um, that would be, was dangerous enough already, but we, it would be more dangerous still. And if we're going to drift into a conflict with China, which the way some people are talking, then God help us, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well- Agree. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's the main problem because I think uh, the, the the main 
common thing we have the information we're trying to get out is you know there's solidarity in nato uh we are resilient we won't be deterred by the russians so you know just now you had the secretary general of nato uh Jens stoltenberg going to uh, to ukraine saying you know they they will become a member of nato i mean this and and again this within the narrative we're always it's it's meant to communicate you know how we're standing together how we're pro-ukrainians and going to help them but what well, well, the the what you said telling moscow is you know well, once this is war is over uh, we're going to move into ukraine this will be our main front this will be a key front against russia what what would you advise moscow to do in that case i mean you would strip ukraine of all its coastline you would want to take away any strategic territory you want to trash anything of value i mean destroy the country this is this is a horrible thing to do i mean we are signing yeah we're drawing a big target on ukraine and we're calling it to be pro ukrainian it's just it's so much uh, ideology then there's twisted narratives that i don't think any common sense can you know get through so but again i'm a pessimist at times perhaps but <laughs> well, i don't i don't think uh, but i agree but um and both of you correct me if you differ but i don't think russia really wants to take over all of ukraine yeah. uh it probably i mean i think putin if he needs to uh will go to the nepper uh but will as he has already hinted uh look at Odessa and say look Odessa if there's going to be a Ukrainian state it needs Odessa it needs access to the Black Sea let's see what we can do and work out an arrangement where Ukraine can be west of the Dnieper maybe with Odessa being a, a kind of Trieste type situation uh, let's work out a deal I think that's what what they would have in mind but you know uh, they've been diddled so much the the Russians have uh and not only with respect to NATO membership but more recently that uh, I think Putin would have a kind of a, a job of persuasion uh if he he beats a continuing recalcitrant west that puts in even farther range anti-aircraft and missilery uh in Romania and Poland and so forth uh not to go all the way and uh uh that's quite possible i think he could go to Moldova and to uh, to Romania so i think that if there's some presence of mind among american politicians and maybe even european politicians to say look you know uh do we really want that or can we do a deal now now that the russian troops have on the dnieper and are willing to deal with respect to allowing uh ukraine to be more than just a, a farm for the rest of europe but allowing it to have access to the black sea through Odessa or some other port in that area i think the makings of a deal are there now uh at that point there'll be even more the makings of a deal and i just hope that there's enough good sense uh, that appears to after the ukrainian counteroffensive peters out the people come to their senses and say let's end this thing the more so since china is not going to allow russia <clears throat> now it's not going to allow russia to lose <clears throat> i i agree with that i i have to say that one of the things that did occur to me is that the chinese peace plan is more a case of china being positioned 
into the situation where once the the, the offensive has petered out mm-hmm. and when we have a situation where people do have to get basically come to their senses there is at least somebody an interlocutor perhaps who can you know, do the do the job of communicating ideas between each other, whether it's more about positioning China in that way. And we, you know, than actually China coming forward and proposing an actual substantive plan at the moment. And again, we had this very interesting conversation with this, with the Indian ambassador, uh, Glenn Mm -hmm. and I, in which, um, you know, we floated the possibility that India might play a similar role. And very interestingly, I noticed that he didn't reject it. He said that firstly, there has to be, we have to get this offensive out of the way. Essentially, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he was saying, but there has to be this offensive. We have to see, people have to see that this military thing isn't going to work. Then there might be a diplomatic opening. And he didn't reject the possibility that India also might want to play a role in it. So, you know, there the might be mediate, well, not mediators, but at least interlocutors at that stage. The question is whether in London, Brussels, Berlin, and of course, first and foremost in Washington, there are people prepared to, to go along with this, to accept that there might be a peace settlement that might you know, leave us with a lot less than, you know, the maximalist positions we've taken up to now. Well, you were there in Vietnam, or not in Vietnam, but, you know, you were there in Washington when Vietnam happened, and you started the programme. You mentioned the fact that Lyndon Johnson understood that there had to be peace, that, you know, support for the war had gone. And, of course, there was a peace. There were negotiations. There were negotiations in in Paris, I remember them. And um, so I suppose perhaps we can hope that something like that might happen again. I agree. Uh, Hope springs eternal. And there are a number of forces coming together to suggest that that might be possible. Um, Problem is, if Biden really wants to run again for president, and a lot of this will depend on domestic political calculations. There's no one more aware of this than Vladimir Putin, who has fallen victim to these kinds of domestic political ramifications impinging upon foreign policy in the U.S. So that uh, throws a kind of a, uh, a wild card. And the other wild card, you mentioned various capitals that would have to be persuaded. I would almost include Warsaw there. Yeah. What really scares me is that some bipolar pole, <laughs> forgive me, will take it unto himself to start some sort of fracas mm. and get us involved in whether or not to invoke Article 5 or not. I mean, mm. this is possible if things don't go their way. Mm. You know, it's not at all inconceivable that something like that could happen. And that's another sort of explosive aspect to this whole thing, which puts the Russians on on edge. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Just on that point, just to quickly say, I noticed that the, I think she was the chair 
of the armed of the military committee in the Bundestag, German lady, I forget her name completely, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. But she said that there is no possibility that there is absolutely no possibility of German or European soldiers going putting their boots down in Ukraine. They just said a few days ago. And I thought the reference to European soldiers was very interesting, given mm -hmm. all that's been talked about, about Poland recently, and whether there's <coughs> somebody in Germany saying, because I, I have to say this, I think if Poland goes into Ukraine and the Germans are asked to come to Poland's rescue, to say they will be unhappy would be an understatement. But anyway, but anyway, um, I, um, I, I wonder whether that wasn't a signal, basically, that, you know, uh, mm. to the to the Poles, as much as to any everybody else, that, you know, if you're planning anything like that, you're thinking mm. about anything like that, then don't. Germany won't support it. But Alexander, I think that's a that's an example of a very perspicacious media analysis. <laughs> I agree with you. And I think it could be a warning to the polls. Uh, uh, on a lighter note, you know, Biden promised not to put boots on the ground there in Ukraine. So yeah. I'm well advised that our 14 special forces people are wearing slippers and slippers have also been issued to the polls that are there and and the uh, who else are there? the British They're mm -hmm. wearing slippers. There is still no NATO boots on the ground. But I found it a bit concerning how Poland views its role in all of this because they have made, made it very clear they would like a more active involvement by, by NATO in the Ukrainian war. And uh, when you see some of the justification, for example, sending uh, uh, fighter jets uh, to Poland, you know, it's not that, sorry, sending fighter jets to Ukraine, the, the, the reasoning is, you know, we want to show there's no glass ceiling. We're going to send fighter jets and uh, you know, break another Russian uh, red line and then nothing going to happen. So if, if we send the jets first, we send the tanks first and other Europeans or Western states will follow. So, yeah. you know, if you extend on that logic, if they start to send in troops, it's, uh, you know, breaking another red line of Russia. It's, uh, you know, to open up for other Westerners to join. So if they see this as their role in this conflict to, uh, well, to help um, mm. Well, mobilize NATO resources into Ukraine. Uh, you know, it could spell, uh, yeah, problems ahead. Uh, because if um, if this, they, I think there's just not think. I know there's already a lot of Poles fighting in Ukraine, but if they start entering uh, under a Polish flag and uh, and then dying in greater numbers, uh, it's going to be you know all this focus on unity and solidarity. This is going to be. It's going to make this a very a very dangerous situation that's what this was good point, mm -hmm. good point. Mm -hmm. well on that uh, note uh, shall we uh anyone uh ray or alexander do you have anything last you i just, I just want to say uh, an, an exceptional discussion can i just say and a very i mean exceptional and first because we've learned a lot learned an awful lot about what what was going on in the late 60s by the way which i didn't know <laughs> which was interesting in itself. And one does sometimes feel, you know, that things do repeat themselves, but I do hope people learn the lessons. I mean, there were a lot of lessons learned in the 60s and the 70s, and I think for a time they did have an effect, but we seem to have forgotten a lot of them. And we're making a lot of the same mistakes and we're doing it much worse than we did in the 60s. And I hope we, this time, 
find a way out of this mess that we've got ourselves into. And I think we should listen to people like Ray, uh, who've been there before, who've been following, tracking Chinese-Russian affairs. I mean, I th remember last program that we did, you made the point, Ray, that in the 1960s, you were telling everybody that this idea that the, of a Sino-Soviet alliance was completely wrong, <laughs> that they were actually uh, 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 in, in conflict with each other. And then um, over the last couple of years, he was saying, well, actually, um, you know, no, this really idea of a Russian-Chinese uh, um, antagonism is also wrong. They're actually coming together. And you were right on both occasions. And um, the other people who were denying this were completely wrong. Well, that's, I think, given that this is the most important relationship in the world now, China, Russia. I think people really do need to listen a bit more carefully to what you said. And can I also say that people should listen both to what you said and to what Jeffrey Sachs said at the UN Security Council, because it was a brilliant presentation and it explained things wonderfully well. Yeah, when um, Ray was talking about uh, Vietnam, I was also thinking, well, I was thinking of Mark Twain, that yeah, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Uh, it all sounds uh, awfully familiar. Um, you know. Well, Glenn, I want to thank you for the opportunity Thank you, Alexander, for your kind words. Um, I have to tell you that I watch you regularly and I feel very well informed as to what's going on in Ukraine. And I thank you for your contribution there because uh, there are very few current intelligence analysts who know something about history, something about war, and something about media analysis that are available to, to people like us today. So. It's my pleasure to be with you all. I'm glad that my longevity and my, uh, my dad was a lawyer and he used to talk about the concept of, um, of uh, let's see, what's the word for uh, being very old? Um, senility, yeah. You'd say <clears throat> you are approaching statutory senility. Okay, now, um, <clears throat> there is no concept in legal affairs that I'm aware of, but he was a lawyer, he used to make fun of this. And he, he turned out to be, become the chairman of, of the Board of Regents of the University of State in New York. And when he became 75, <clears throat> he decided that all these superannuated people around the table at the board should be given a lesson. And so he said, I am resigning next next month because I have reached the age of statutory senility in those days, 75. Now he did, he went back to law practice. Did any of those other members quit? They couldn't get the hint, okay? Hint, hint. That has to do with the superannuated people who are still running our policy or are still incapable. Like Joe Biden, I think he has now reached the age of statutory senility and who's running the show? Unelected people, what, wet behind the ears like Jacob Sullivan and uh, Blinken. So this is a very serious situation. The Russians consider them crazy. Putin's word, uh, that's not funny. That has incredible implications. Let's hold on to our hack and let's get as much truth out into the air as we've done, as hoped to done uh, today with Glenn. 
Thanks again, Alexander, and thank you, Glenn. And thank you for your very generous words, Ray. Thanks again, Ray.